Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you could be with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for you today. And Jim, of the Republican National Convention, night three, also very good. Um, Everything was on tape except for Mike Pence. And as you said in the morning jolt, Mike Pence did fine. Mike Pence, you know what you're getting every time uh, with Mike Pence. He's on message. He's disciplined. He's not the most uh, charismatic person in, in the world of politics. But uh, he's a solid guy and uh, really took it to Joe Biden last night in a number of different ways, contrasting what uh, a Biden-Harris administration would look like compared to what he and President Trump want to do. I thought uh, as... Even Mike Murphy, the campaign consultant who hates Trump, says Pence drew blood last night. And we'll see what Trump has in mind uh, later this evening. Also, uh, even though the earlier speeches were taped, some of them were very good. Uh, One of them, which I'm sure Bette Midler didn't appreciate because it once again involved an accent, was uh, the Chinese dissident Chen Guangchen, who was put in prison for criticizing China's one-child policy. You know, the policy where they make you kill your children after you've had just one? Yeah, that one. Uh, So he talked about what the Chinese Communist Party uh, means as a threat to the rest of the world. He minced few words. The accent's a little thick, but it's very important. The CCP is an enemy of humanity. It is terrorizing its own people. And it is threatening the well-being of the world. In China, expressing beliefs or ideas not approved by the CCP, religion, democracy, human rights can lead to prison. Jim, there are certain moments in life when you realize that perhaps uh, you haven't done enough with your life. Watching a guy from China who was blind read a speech in Braille in a second language to a national television audience (laughs) makes you realize that uh, some people are capable of truly amazing things, and all of us are, obviously. Uh, You also made the point uh, in the Morning Jolt, and I think we've talked about it this week, that uh, instead of uh, trotting out fossilized politicians like the Democrats did for the most part, uh, having regular Americans tell their stories really made a difference in this convention. Yes, and before I go too much further, dear listeners, I just want to make the observation. If you listen to this podcast regularly, and I hope you do, you probably come away with the impression of, wow, Greg Columbus just seems like the nicest guy in the world. Now, because you don't get to listen to us off the air, Listeners, it's all a lot. No, Greg is really is like just about the nicest human being on earth, which means that when Greg chooses to take out the dagger and twist the knife on Bette Midler the way he did a few minutes ago, it really stands out because it takes a lot to make Greg Columbus angry. Don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. He's much <laughs> like Bruce Banner that way. Um, so just an observation. Like, yeah, that really was a snotty and outright xenophobic thing for Bette Midler to say. And this is probably going to have no consequences for Bette Midler or her career, probably because she doesn't have that much of a career left. But nonetheless, it should. It's one of those things where the enormous number of people who are convinced that they're the good ones, that they're sensitive, that they are welcoming of immigrants, will let out the ugliest and nastiest xenophobic uh, statements when it's someone they don't like. Hypocrisy doesn't really do it justice. But anyway, just observing, yeah, you know, I was thinking back four years ago at the Republican convention in Cleveland. 
listeners probably remember, that was an ugly Republican primary. There were a lot of Republicans who were not comfortable with the idea of Donald Trump being their nominee. And you saw a whole bunch of Republicans who usually attend the convention suddenly have other plans that week that they couldn't make. And I think a couple of them were kind of glaring examples, like Rob Portman, one of the senators from Ohio. I don't think Kasich went. There, there were all kinds of people. Usually when you have a convention, the party's problem is that everybody in the every elected official and their brother wants to speak. And the question is, if you leave somebody out, do they get snubbed? Are you saying, ah, oh, you know, my state is really important and you didn't invite me to speak in prime time? You know, usually conventions have the problem of way too many speakers, too many speakers who want to talk for way too long uh, and trying to figure out a way to fit them all in in a time slot that doesn't seem like an insult. You know, when Trump's on because a whole bunch of Republicans don't want to be seen with them, all of a sudden you've got a lot more slots. And all of a sudden this turned into a, a, a actually this you know, would seem like a weakness. It turned into a benefit because both that convention back in Cleveland and this year, we've seen a lot more, quote unquote, ordinary Americans. I think it's pretty obvious these Americans are anything but ordinary. Um, but they are, there's one of those things where, you know, without this, if you had, you know, everybody, every, if every Republican in the Senate was like, no, I really want to be in this you're probably not going to have the time to let Maximo Alvarez, that Cuban-American immigrant, speak at length about what life is like under a socialist authoritarian country. You may or may not have time for Natalie Harp to talk about right to try, something that probably isn't at the absolute apex of people's political priorities. But for her, it's a matter of life and death. And it's a, probably a very useful message for the Trump campaign to put out there. Uh, Abby Johnson talking about... Uh, uh, abortion in, in you know ways we've probably never heard discussed at a convention speech before. Um, and just last night, Sister Deidre Byrne, you know, Greg, I don't know about you, if you find nuns, like you admire them, but you find them a little intimidating, um, then, you know, the <laughs> fact that she's a surgeon and a retired army colonel, in addition to being a member of the Little Sisters of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary, like, you know, you, you don't usually see like this, Not like, maybe you'd have them on, on stage for a minute or two or giving the benediction or, or something. Okay, no, Sister Deirdre Byrne got to speak about abortion at length. And she opened with this genuinely funny joke about how she had prayed for a way to be a more effective tool of God's work on earth and to stand up for the pro-life cause. And now she's speaking at the Republican National Convention. So be careful about what you pray for. That was a good line. It was funny. You know, so th there's this opportunity created. And I think this is one of the things that make th makes this a much more interesting convention to watch. Uh, by and large, speeches from politicians, there are some good ones. We talked about how good uh, Tim Scott was and Nikki Haley. Last night, Lee Zeldin, eh, nothing special. Uh, you know, Pompeo from Jerusalem, eh, you know. Some politicians, I think they kind of have this autopilot that they go on to for speeches. And we've, particularly if we've seen them a lot before, particularly if we've um, heard them before, we, we were not expecting Mike Pence to go out there and, uh, you know, be zany and unpredictable and shocking. You know, he was not going to quote from, you know, the, the WAP video. You know, we, we, Mike Pence <laughs> is mashed potatoes on white bread. And that's, the, you know, some people might complain, but honestly, the way 2020 has gone, Greg, I'm perfectly fine with boring right now. I think we all need a little more boring in our life. Um, so a very solid night. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, you, you, first of all, there was barely any mention of China at all on the Democratic convention. And here, a fairly significant chunk, almost in the premier primetime spot, 
was was put on the focus of Chinese China's the Chinese government, their atrocious record on human rights. By the way, Greg, my understanding is that ABC News did not cover this live. They had their commentators talk over it. That wouldn't have anything to do with Disney's investments in China, now would it? Oh, I'm sure it doesn't. Yeah, mere coincidence. Coincidental. Okay. <laughs> no, they've they've done a good job of explaining. You know, if you think all the flowery language about socialism, no matter how it's couched, free this, free that, uh, how it's going to end up, we know how it ends up. We know how it ends up every time. Uh, and so Maxima Alvarez and Chen Guangchen uh, doing an excellent job of talking about that. And uh, again, uh, the people you don't know their names before they walk up there. I thought the the mom talking about school choice uh, who had the Down syndrome child and the school didn't want to have anything to do with her son. And that's after the obstetrician didn't want to have anything to do with her son. And so uh, those are powerful stories. And I think it matters more than hearing what Senator so-and-so from wherever uh, has to say about something. But uh, they need their time, too, because they're running for re-election in most cases. Jim, let's talk about our bad martini today. And you had an excellently uh, stated prediction come true yesterday that Joe Biden was going to come forward and, and talk about how the violence needed to end in these cities following the uh, the Don Lemon soliloquy the other night. Uh, Biden taped the message, went about a minute, minute and a half, said we need to have justice, but uh, the violence is doing us no good and it's actually distracting us from justice. So you know, if he had given the speech three months ago, it probably would have had a greater impact, but better saying it now than never. Uh, but as you predicted, didn't stop people from going crazy, uh, especially in Minneapolis last night, uh, where a suspect uh, sought for murder was being chased by police. He ultimately took his own life. Didn't matter. The rumors started that he was killed by the police and all sorts of property destruction was going on in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Uh, and, of course, we've had multiple nights of uh, mayhem in Kenosha. I guess it was a little bit quieter last night, but that was, of course, after three people got shot the night before and all sorts of property had been torched. And, uh, you know, it's finally happening in a swing state, so suddenly everybody's paying attention uh, regardless of their political stripes. So whether this is going to end, I don't know. But the tinderbox is clearly still there when a police-involved shooting that didn't involve the police led to that much mayhem in Minneapolis last night. Yeah, there's there's two things that jump out here. Like some people had noted that one of the uh, you know potential risks in this for Biden is that if he came out and his statement was fine, there was nothing, you know, wasn't particularly angry or, you know, but impassioned enough. Fine. Check the box. He said what he needed to say. Uh, the, then the violence continues. It, it, you know, there's no indication that that had any impact in, in Kenosha. And as you said, in Minneapolis, this example that is somehow even more tragic because, by the way, there was like police released the video. This is not a claim that he, he committed suicide. He committed suicide. And all of a sudden, rioting and looting started up all over again. It's as if they had not been, you know, no one had learned anything from three months ago. Uh, they were as unprepared as anything else that downtown Minneapolis, people started smashing store windows and grabbing what they wanted. By the way, that has nothing to do with the police, right? That, you know, and one of the things that kind of got me, I, I talked about this at length in today's morning, Joel, there is this argument from folks who have been to the George Floyd protests, people who, uh, support Black Lives Matter or, or, you know, who have this. And I know people who have done this. They're not bad people, or at least the ones I know, don't, I don't think of as being bad people. And their argument is, well, I'm not looting. I'm, I'm not those guys. You don't see me setting st- fire to buildings. I'm not any of these things. I'm not beating people. So don't tar me with what they did. Don't don't conflate what I'm standing for and the values I'm trying to say with what they're doing over there. And, and you know, that's a fair argument. 
It is, however, how the rest of the police feel about the police in Minneapolis. And it's how pro-lifers feel about Eric Rudolph. That's how people in the financial industry feel about Bernie uh, Madoff. Like Madoff. I mean, like there are we, we all hate the idea of being associated with the worst person who's technically in our group. And many of us would say, well, hey, you know, once, once Eric Rudolph starts blowing stuff up, he's not really pro-life. Uh, a genuine financial manager would say what Bernie Madoff was doing was a scam. It has nothing to do with what I do. It's completely different. All right, you know. Um, so we all have this common sentiment here. But here's the odd thing is that if the people setting fires are completely different from the George Floyd protesters, then there should be no controversy in denouncing them. No one should be hesitant at all about denouncing them because no one could reasonably believe that by saying these people who are rioting, who are looting, who are setting fires, who are attacking people are are the worst. They are criminals. They must be incarcerated. They're the scum of the earth, right? You say that, no one would say he attacked Black Lives Matter protesters, which, by the way, the moment a Republican says that, that's often how the, you know, those two groups get conflated themselves. So the fact that Democrat, that there was almost no mention of this at all at the Democratic convention, and the fact that it took lots of people openly nudging, Don Lemon saying, you know, Joe Biden, you got to say this. I think it indicates that a bunch of people do see the protesters and the violent folks as not as entirely separate as they'd like to think they are. Because otherwise, like what, was Joe Biden afraid he's going to lose votes? On the one hand, it's absurd. But on the other hand, maybe it isn't so absurd. Maybe if he comes out and really gave a, a blistering speech and said, you know, these people are an insult to everything George Floyd would want, right? Maybe that would be, maybe that would actually cost him some votes. I don't think so. I'd hate to think that. But maybe there are some people who are like, I, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden as long as he's on my side. And he protects my right to arson. I, you know, maybe there's some people who think that way in this world. But anyway, so I, to me, there should be a separate, you know, there should be a separate line here. The other thing is if you're voting for Joe Biden because you think he'll calm things down, if you think he'll let the air out of the balloon of the anger in public life, if you think he will restore order and that what we're seeing in places like Minneapolis and Kenosha and all these other cities is somehow Trump's fault, I got bad news for you. Based on what he said last night, there's no indication Joe Biden's going to be able to change any of this. As I said in the jolt earlier this week, I don't think the people who are rioting are listening to Joe Biden. I don't think they care what he says. So the idea that electing Joe Biden is the the you know the skeleton key that opens the lock or the, the magic bullet that uh, somehow stops the problem, folks, I think under President Biden, you're going to see the exact same tensions you see right now between the cops and, and African Americans, and um, you know the same kind of problems on the streets of America. And Mike Pence uh, certainly seemed to separate them. He talked about the need for justice, uh, talked about the need for law and order, obviously, and talked about the need to revitalize uh, communities of color, uh, which he says the Trump administration has done. And we've seen other speakers to that effect as well. Uh, I'm sure there are folks who wish he would have talked more about uh, the police issue from from the other side, uh, the, the need for reform. But uh, we'll see what President Trump says on that tonight. But uh uh, Pence at least did address both uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and I don't think anybody at the uh, uh, Democratic convention addressed both. Jim, let's talk about our crazy martini now, and it's pretty much along the same lines. Uh, Jacob Blake, uh, of course, is the black man who was shot by Kenosha police, and we've got more details on that now. Uh, there's also quite a bit of footage, but uh, apparently he was being ordered to to stop. Uh, he had been tasered. He had a knife in his hand. And uh, as he was reaching back into the car, uh, police feared, I guess, that he was going to go for a more lethal weapon. Uh, and that's when the shots were fired. I don't know that that's going to resolve the 
frustration uh, over the shooting and whether that's going to mean calmer events in the streets of Kenosha and elsewhere. But it certainly doesn't mean uh, that things are going to be back to normal, at least immediately, for the NBA. The National Basketball Association, of course, is in this bubble in Orlando. They've been there for weeks and weeks and weeks now. They've finished the regular season. They're in the first round of the playoffs. Some of those first round series are over. Yesterday, the top seed in the Eastern Conference, the Milwaukee Bucks, were headed into Game 5 against the Orlando Magic. And the Bucks, which of course are from the same state where the shooting happened in Kenosha, decided they're not going to take the floor uh, out of protest for the police-involved shooting. They just never came out for warm-ups. Nobody knew what was going on. Uh, eventually, the Orlando Magic agreed to boycott or strike or whatever terminology you want to use as well. And by the end of the day, every playoff game, all three of them scheduled for yesterday, weren't going to happen. Most of what we're hearing today is that today's scheduled games probably won't happen. And even three Major League Baseball games did not happen last night, starting with uh, the Milwaukee Brewers calling off their game as a result of this. Uh, apparently no forfeits. We're just going to reschedule everything. Um, Jim, um, I guess it's not a huge surprise that this is going to happen since the NBA has uh, been perhaps the most vocal about these things. But as you pointed out on social media yesterday, okay, you made your statement. Uh, what needs to happen and how quickly for you to do your job again? Yeah, uh, you know, it was so in today's morning jolt, lately as I approach political journalism and, and I run into somebody who's got a point either that I disagree with or in the case of the NBA players, it was like, OK, you've chosen to take this stand. You've chosen to register your outrage in this format. Now what? What what continues? And for what it's worth, the, the Milwaukee Bucks players uh, did meet with the or apparently talked to the lieutenant governor and attorney general of uh, the state of Wisconsin they're hoping the state legislature comes back and passes a bill. That's, you know, that the, the Milwaukee Bucks have basically become state legislative lobbyists, basically, uh, that they they want to get something passed. And that's and maybe, you know, maybe that's what comes out of this. Maybe something good comes out of this, because otherwise it's just I'm not going to do this. Then what? Right. But, but you're going to hear, particularly if you listen to sports radio or maybe even political talk radio for today. A lot of very familiar cries of these darn spoiled athletes and millionaires. Shut up, shut up and dribble. And okay, let's take a moment and like, let's try empathy. Let, let's let's step out of our heads and pretend we're popping up out of our brains and walking over into the mind of LeBron James. And let's look at the world the way LeBron James sees it. LeBron James is is a very lucky guy. I think he'd be the first to to tell you this that you know he has. More money than we're probably ever going to see in our lives. Uh, he's got fame. He's got uh, you know the ab- ability to. They're going to remake Space Jam with him. He's one of the most beloved athletes and celebrities in the world. This is you know life is pretty darn sweet if you're LeBron James. But you know LeBron James grew up in Akron. He founded a he put together and financed and founded a charter school out there. Uh, LeBron James, you know, cares about his old community in Akron. And he presumably, you know, wants to see young African-American men all across the country be able to thrive and live their dreams. And a big part of this is live well into middle age and and old age. And it's not happening. Akron has gotten better in some ways, but there are still probably very lingering problems. And I figure if you're a professional athlete, if you're in the NBA right now, Everybody thinks your life is blessed and unbelievable, but you and you you can you can get people to drink Sprite, you can get people to buy Adidas sneakers, but you can't really you for all your your money and fame, you don't have the power to actually make the world a better place the way you'd like. 
And I think what we saw yesterday was a bunch of these players who've been very active. They got the slogans on their shirts. They've spoken out. They've made their gesture. You know, like they've done all this stuff. They kneel during the national anthem. And the problems they see don't change. Now, I would look at this and say, all right, well, maybe maybe some of these things are symbolic and that they, they don't actually do it. Maybe we've got to focus on what actually changes police behavior. Um, you know, police unions, maybe. Maybe you look at... Uh, uh, qualified immunity, you know, there are some more policy issues that are a little more focused on this, but it's just fine. So they said they want to do something. They're tired of doing the stay in school public service announcements. They feel like what they've done before hasn't made a difference and hasn't had enough of a, an impact. Okay. You know, it's, it's, I can understand why somebody would feel that way. Saying I'm not going to play the rest of the season. I'm, the, the postseason is canceled as apparently the, the Los Angeles Clippers and Los Angeles Lakers, at least that's their viewpoint right now. We'll see if that changes. Um, I don't know if that's the right solution. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's the wrong solution. But, you know, I'm not an NBA player. They can, they can draw their own conclusions. I think what they are not quite grasping, every other sports league that has had an interruption in play has ended up having some, some long-term problems. It usually takes you at least a year to recover, and sometimes significantly more than that. Ask Major League Baseball how it went when they didn't have a World Series in 1994. Ask the uh, the National Hockey League how not having a season in 2004 worked out for them. Most of the time, it hurts your league, hurts your teams, hurts your sports, uh, hurts you know your hurts your revenue. Right? People don't buy the merchandise for teams that aren't playing. Right? And so if you have a season where you don't, oh by the way. We are knocking on the door. Like the the preseason for the following NBA season was supposed to start next month, right? We are, we are now at the point where it's not just the 2019-2020 season of the NBA has been shot to heck by the pandemic and the shutdown, and then trying to restart in Orlando. Next season is already going to be impacted by what's going on right now. So I don't know. Like, and tread carefully, NBA. You you may be on not be on the strong uh, thicker ice that you think you are. Because your fans have had to do without you for a couple of months. And we all talked about this. We all wanted to see sports come back. It's one of the things that makes us happy in life. It is, an enter- it is entertainment. You know, and, and while I, I would never say to an athlete, you're not allowed to talk about these things, the more you bring really serious, heavy, depressing topics, that's when you get some people saying, shut up and dribble. I don't know if it's necessarily right, but like, you are there to kind of make people escape from all the problems of life. You know, at some point, the fans are just going to lose interest. The fans, fans have lots of options. Fans can say, you know what? I'm not going to go, all right, there's not going to be an NBA season. Let me turn to the NFL. Oh, the NFL's not going to do it. Let's see if they can pull off college football. PGA is still doing okay. You know, fans have options. There's no law that says fans have to stay fans. And there was this fascinating interview over in Slate magazine where, you know, argument between two sports writers where the television ratings for the NBA are down eh, almost half from 2011, 2012. That's huge. And these other sports where I was like, no, no, it's doing fine. If you look at the Gallup polls, people are as interested as they ever were. Well, like there's a, there's telling a Gallup pollster, you still love foot basket, basketball. And then there's like, do you sit down and watch the games? And the sports writer would say, no, that's a really big measurement of people are into it. And when people stop doing that, that's a sign that something's wrong. And this other sports writer just did not want to hear it. He did not want to believe it could possibly be true. I think you look at that, I think it is an indicator of this. And I think that people are willing to tolerate political activism from professional athletes. I think they're willing to agree with them. But you got to do it in moderate doses. 
Uh, and at some point it gets to be too much and people lose interest. It starts to become a primarily political organization and not an athletic one. And it's the sort of thing that happens when a team says, look, we're not going to hold the playoffs unless the, the uh, Wisconsin state legislature passes a bill. Never had anything like this before. And it's coming on the wheels of a four month interruption based by the pandemic. So NBA tread carefully. I, I do not take your fans for granted and uh, we will see how things shake out here, Greg, but uh the fact, I mean, how'd you like to be the NBA? You set up this bubble in Orlando. You finally figure out a way to play, you know, that's relatively minimal risk for the coronavirus. And then the players say, yeah, we don't know if we want to finish the playoffs. Just unbelievable, Greg. It is quite the twist. It is quite the twist. And I'm just thinking here, Jim, where we were three months ago, almost to the day. I'm looking back at our archive for our show here today. And on May 28th, the good martini that day, three days after the death of George Floyd, uh, I labeled the good martini the Floyd Consensus. There was really no one that anybody could name who thought that what had happened in Minneapolis that day was okay. Everyone condemned it. Everyone was looking for ways to at least tweak, if not uh, make significant changes to the system, because there was no legitimate excuse for the treatment of George Floyd that day. And then within a couple of days, things were on fire because the very next day, the bad martini was the Minnesota mess. And so the fact that more people did not denounce the violence, like going back to our second martini, and, uh, and, and trying to come back to that consensus and using that unique moment because so many times, and it's going to be this way with Kenosha, where, well, some people see it this way, some people see it this way. With Floyd uh, and, and, and the officer there, nobody saw it two different ways. That was the opportunity to really uh, make a difference, and it was completely squandered because the people who took to the streets were not condemned for the most part and in some ways tacitly encouraged. That was a, a moment that was not very common and it was completely squandered. Yeah, who could have seen it coming, Greg? Oh, man. Anyway, Jim, one more night of political conventions and then we don't have to do it for four more years. Boy, how are we going to go deal without this? <laughs> I think one we'll, more night. I think we'll Give me just one more night, as Genesis used to say. Have a good day. See you tomorrow. See you, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch, and we would love it and be very grateful if you could give us a five-star rating and a kind review. That's always helpful to us. Remember, you can get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. And please join us Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.